And now would you open in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 4. And I know that sounds like a mistake, but bear with me. Matthew chapter 4. We spent the last several months in the Sermon on the Mount, and since you didn't seem to get it, we're going to have to start that whole thing over. <laughs> Just kidding. No, I want to remind you uh, of where we've been so that you can see where we are going in Matthew. Uh, the first four chapters of Matthew serve as something of an introduction, uh, not only to the gospel, but to the person of Christ. Chapter 1, we're given the genealogy of the king. Chapter 2, we're given the early life of the king, and we're presented with the fact that the Magi coming, and even the flight down to Egypt, and the coming back from Egypt, all of those things are centered around the fulfillment of prophecy. And then in chapter 3, we have this promised forerunner of the king in John the Baptist who comes to prepare the hearts and the minds of the people to receive the king. And by the end of chapter 4, I'm sorry, by the end of chapter 3, we have the baptism of the king as he's presented and the voice from the heaven of God himself says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Chapter 4, we have the testing of the king because if he is going to be the Christ, if he is the Messiah, then he cannot fail where everyone before him has failed. And as he passed those tests, as he bears up under the temptation of Satan himself, he begins to proclaim his kingdom and the power that's coming with that. And that's where we come to the end of chapter 4, and Matthew gives us this summary statement of his ministry. In Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 23, it says, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and from Judea and beyond the Jordan. He's teaching and he's proclaiming. He's healing diseases and affliction. He's casting out demons. He's calling disciples to himself. And he's doing all of these things as the crowds grow. And now where have we been in chapter 5 through 7? It's the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the very last sermon title in Matthew chapter 4 that I do not expect you to remember was the king's authority. Matthew presents him at the very end of chapter 4 as this one who has authority unlike any other, and then he moves immediately into chapter 5, 6, and 7 that shows how the king teaches with authority, that he alone is able to authoritatively proclaim the coming kingdom and what it requires to enter into that kingdom. And now what we're going to see as we move into chapter 8 and chapter 9 is a continuation of that by showing the king's authority, the king's power, even over death and disease and the demons. And we're going to see these powerful displays of what the king is able to do. In other words, all that to say that Matthew knows exactly what he is doing. He doesn't waste words. He knows exactly where he's going from the beginning of the gospel. And so we're going to move through 8 and 9 with that mindset. That this is an extension of who he is in chapter 4. This is the continued proof of who the king is. And so now you can turn over to Matthew chapter 8 for our text today. We're going to be in 8, 1 through 17. 17 verses. So that either thrilled your heart or brought you to despair. I will leave that to you to sort out. But I'm going to read chapter 8 verses 1 through 4 to prepare us for where we're going. Chapter 8 begins this way. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Let's pray. 
Lord, we open your word once again and we are reminded of the power of the King, the power of this person, Jesus the Christ, born uh, into a sinful world but sinless, born in frailty of human flesh but one who existed from before time began. God, help us to see this King rightly so that we might then respond rightly. God, open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. And then through the power of your spirit and the clarity of your word, help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And we need your help to do all of these things. They're not natural to us. They're not instinctual to us. We need your help both to hear and then to obey. So God, today, cause us to be hearers and doers of your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, we all understand what it means to recognize authority. When people have authority, the things that they do and the things that they bring with them into any given situation bear that out. Uh, This morning before you got here, as they were testing the audiovisual equipment, they had uh, something from President Trump up there at a rally. And when the president enters a room, a very particular song plays, Hail to the Chief plays. And as the president enters the room, he's accompanied by an army of aides who carry out his will and secret service agents who are there uh, to guard and protect his life. And you will notice that when I came up to the stage, today there was no fanfare and and there's nobody standing behind me to take a bullet for me and that is all entirely appropriate because he has an entirely different kind of authority than I do if I'm driving down the highway and I see a black and white car behind me with red and blue lights flashing I immediately pull over and wonder how it is I'm going to explain this to my wife but I know that somebody with authority has compelled me to do something. Now, if somebody pulled up behind me in an 84 blue Buick with a red light duct tape to their roof, I probably wouldn't pull over. In fact, I would advise strongly against it. Why? Because we expect people with authority to come in a particular way to demonstrate things that bear up who they are. Now, Matthew is claiming something significantly greater than being able to write a traffic ticket and significantly greater even than being the president of the country. He has said that this is Jesus, the Christ. He is the son of Abraham. He is the son of David. And now he has said he is the very son of God. That he has authority over the kingdom of heaven. And those kind of claims demand proof. Everything that Matthew does in his gospel goes to validate those claims. And today we move into demonstrations of the power of the king. In the coming weeks, we're going to move through chapters 8 and 9. And what we're going to see is that Matthew gives us nine miracles, and they're in three groups of three. So that's where we're grouping 17 verses together, because it's uh, three miracles together. And we have a group of miracles, and then a response. And then a group of miracles, and a response. And then a third group of miracles, and a response. So that's kind of how we're going to progress through this. But let's open up today with Christ's power to restore to wholeness, particularly those who are unclean. Restoring to wholeness. Chapter 8, 1 through 4 begins exactly where chapter 4 ended. The crowds are following him at the end of chapter 4, and now as he's done that teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 1 says that he comes and great crowds are continuing to follow him. But in the midst of that great crowd now, we have a very particular approach. Look at what it says in verse 2. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him. A man who was a social outcast approaches him. And we have to understand something about leprosy here to understand what we're talking about and why this is such a shocking thing to have happen. Uh, today we call leprosy Hansen's disease. That's the official name. And whether this was that particular disease or kind of a, a catch-all term for any number of skin diseases isn't really important. Matthew's not making a distinction on the particular kind. What he is saying is this man had a very identifiable thing happening to him. Leprosy uh, is a skin disease that attacks the nerve endings and it deadens sensation. 
uh, you get those common pictures of the lepers and there's ears missing or fingers and toes missing, uh, limbs and extremities that uh, fall off. And it's not that the disease removes them, it's that it deadens the sense of touch. And as you get blisters and sores, as you get injured, you don't feel pain anymore. It deadens the senses and so wounds begin to fester and rot and decay and skin death and tissue death set in. And so you begin to lose those extremities as you lose feeling. It is a kind of progressive living death. And so leprosy is a visible disease. If you were to go back and if you were to read in the law, Leviticus chapter 13, it gives a, a verse after verse of how you are to identify a leper. There was a, an examination by a priest and if there was any suspicion, then there was a quarantine period, something we're all familiar with. But their quarantine period had a set amount of time, and then you got examined again. And then uh, if you did, in fact, get diagnosed with leprosy, your entire life changed immediately. Because in that moment, you were now an outcast among your people. You were both physically and spiritually unclean. You were contagious, and what you had was seen as something that would easily spread throughout the population. And leprosy, more than any other disease among the uh, ancient uh, Israelites here, was seen as something uh, that was spiritual in nature. It, it was seen as part of, of a curse by God. And so you weren't just physically unclean, you were spiritually unclean. You were unfit to be around people. You had to say unclean as they approached to prevent anyone from touching you. But more than that, because you were unclean, you were actually also unfit to be in the presence of God. You could not go to the tabernacle to worship. You could not go to the temple to worship. And so you were excluded from that very thing that identified you as a people out of every tribe and tongue and nation on earth. That thing that had been given to Israel, the very presence of God you were now kept away from. And in spite of all of that, in spite of the shock and what I can only imagine would be the outrage of the crowd, Matthew says that this leper comes and he knelt before him. Now, if you have the King James Version or the New King James, uh, it probably says he worshipped him. Uh, the word means to kneel or to bow down. Uh, and I think we can very clearly say that he recognized something of the power and the authority of Christ. Worship maybe isn't inherent in the word, but he certainly came the right way. He came in humility, recognizing that Christ is someone who is absolutely greater than he is. And as he speaks, we see that he not only has the right approach, but that he comes with a very particular understanding here. He comes and he knelt before him, and this is what he's saying, Lord, if you will you can make me clean. That is a profound statement because you'll notice he does not say, Jesus, heal me of my leprosy. Now, the request for healing is implied there, but he doesn't ask him to be healed. When we have a cold or a fever, we pray that we would be healed. When someone has COVID, we pray for their healing. When someone has cancer, we pray for their healing. That makes sense. To restore to physical wholeness is to pray for healing, but he's asking for more than that. He's saying, Lord, you can make me clean. He recognizes that this is more than a physical state and that he needs cleansing, he needs wholeness, he needs restoration. And he recognizes that Jesus has the ability not only to remove the physical manifestation of the disease, but to restore him to the wholeness that he had known before. And it's so interesting the way that he asks that. He says, if you will. He doesn't say if you're able to. 
He comes to Jesus with absolutely no doubt about his ability to do this. We don't know how he heard what he heard. News traveled by word of mouth, and it obviously spread very quickly. We know that crowds are coming from the Decapolis and from Syria and beyond the Jordan, all over uh, that area of Palestine. And so this leper had somehow heard of what Christ had did. Perhaps he had seen something from a distance about his power, but he knew, and he comes with every understanding that Jesus is absolutely able to do this. And so he doesn't attach it to the ability, but what does he attach it to? He attaches it to the will of the Lord. He says, Jesus, you have every ability to do this miraculous thing, this physical thing, even this very spiritual cleansing act. What it hinges on, Jesus, is if you will. If you want to, you can absolutely do this. Well, if you have your Old Testament theology right, you know who the only person who can do exactly what they want is? It's God himself. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 135.6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. And I'm not suggesting that this man was able to perfectly articulate the deity of Christ. I don't think he was there, but something in him recognized that Jesus not only had the power to do this and the authority to do this, but that the entire thing hinged on his will to accomplish this. Not on his ability, but on his will. And so he comes in this unexpected way with this depth of understanding, at least about the power and the person of Christ. And it turns out that he's met with a a response that's no less shocking when we understand those circumstances. Look at verse 3. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Now that is something that you simply did not do. Because to touch a leper meant that there was a chance you could catch his leprosy. You might very well catch the physical disease that he had. But to touch a leper meant that you absolutely without fail took on his uncleanness. You might catch the disease, but you certainly caught his uncleanness. As you touched him, you too were now unclean. But Jesus doesn't pull back. He does the unthinkable, and he reaches out and stretches his hand toward him. Uh, We think twice before we touch someone today. We don't shake hands. We bump fists. We wear the mask. We wear the gloves. If you've been around anybody that has a tickle in their throat, you know that they are terrified to cough because of the stigma that's associated with that now. And if you can imagine going to a particular COVID ward at a hospital and and touching patients without any personal protective equipment, that would be shocking. This is a, a dozen times more shocking than that. That Jesus would physically reach out and touch this one who was unclean. And Jesus says, I will or I am willing, be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. See, by touching the unclean, Jesus doesn't take on his defilement When he touches the unclean, Jesus makes the unclean clean. The Son of God isn't corrupted by the corruption of this man. He brings wholeness where there was an outcast before. And the change is immediate. Cells that are destroyed, uh, gone. Uh, The scaling on the skin is gone. There's no period of waiting for sores to clear up. There's no period of waiting as the decay and the smell that would go along with that clears up. The power is displayed in a moment and his healing is perfect and it is complete. And he demonstrates that not only is he absolutely able to do this, but that that was his will to do. And after that willing and able response, look at the command that he gives in verse 4. Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. He says, say nothing. 
Now, the miracle itself wasn't secret. He did this in public. The context suggests that there were certainly crowds around. So why does he say not to say anything? Um, well, there's really a common theme throughout the Gospels, and we'll see it again in Matthew, that Jesus prohibits people for a time from saying who he is or what he's done. And there's all kinds of uh, understandings about why that is, and this is one of those places where we can disagree on a detail and still be firmly in the same camp and good theological friends. I think it has to do with the fact that this leper is, as of yet, unable to communicate the fullness of who Christ is. See, there would be every temptation to say that Jesus is a healer, and he absolutely is, but isn't he infinitely more than that? You could present Jesus as an authoritative teacher, and he certainly was, but he's more than that. That he is a good leader, and of course he is, but he's more than that. See, we're still eight chapters away from Peter proclaiming, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This man would not be able to proclaim Christ for who he is. And so before he sends him out to testify, he says, you need to be obedient. It's interesting that after Christ restores him, the first call is obedience. And he says, go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded. And if you do your, dev your devotions in Leviticus 13 and 14, and I know many of you did this week, then you'll remember that that's the chapter 13 that says this is how you identify leprosy. And chapter 14, this is how you restore someone who had leprosy. This is the process and the procedure that you go through. And if you know the law, then you know that that part kind of stuck out. And the reason is people just don't get over leprosy. Now, there were rashes and things that came and went away. The, those weren't leprosy. There are skin conditions that might discolor a part of the skin, but if it's stopped, uh, uh, then that goes away. Or the, even if it stays, if it stays stable, uh, that's not leprosy. But to be diagnosed with actual leprosy, the excluding, unclean kind of leprosy, was something that you just didn't come back from. In fact, if you read the whole Old Testament, there is exactly one case of cured leprosy, and it's not a Jew that it happens to. It's this pagan military leader, Naaman, from Syria. And he comes, and Elisha, the prophet of God, says, dunk yourself in the Jordan River seven times, and then you'll be healed. And, and that's it. If there were others, we simply do not know about them until this. And Jesus says, go and show yourself to the priest. Why? For a proof to them, for a testimony or a witness to them. Because what they are going to see is a man who was undoubtedly leprous, and is now unquestionably clean. And that is going to lead to some very serious questions. And then they are going to find out that it's Jesus of Nazareth who has reached out and touched him. And when they hear that Jesus has the power to do this, they are going to have to make a very particular decision about the nature of that kind of power. They are going to have a witness to the power of Jesus, and they are going to have to determine where they think that power comes from. Now keep that in mind as we go into the next miracle, and even further as we move into Matthew chapter 12. Not today. So, so far we've seen the power of Jesus as he restores to wholeness one who is defiled and outcast because of a physical condition. And the question's not one of his power, but it's of his will. And he's willing, so the power is demonstrated as a testimony for who he is. And now we come to another healing, and this time it involves another outsider, but this time not an outsider through disease, but an outsider through his birth. And we're going to watch as Jesus demonstrates the power to restore to citizenship and just like we began with an approach in the first miracle, we see another unexpected approach in verse 5. Look with me at verse 5. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. 
The leper is rejected because he's physically unclean. This centurion would have been rejected uh, because he was unclean by his very birth. First of all, he is a Gentile. He is not born of the people of God. He is an outcast from the very beginning, stranger to the covenants, stranger to the promises of God, outside of the chosen people. And not only is he a Gentile, but he is a centurion. He is a a commander of at least 100 men in the Roman army, a hated, despised foreign oppressor in the land. It was an affront to the people to have a foreign enemy ruling their land. I mean, this was their land promised to them by God, and a son of David was supposed to be ruling on the throne. In other words, Rome was everything there was to hate about the Gentile world, and this man would have been a symbol of that. From every earthly perspective, this one has authority over this crowd that's gathered, but look how he comes. He comes and he calls Jesus Lord as he addresses him. And not only that, he appeals to him. And the word there, this really earnest ask, begging. He comes almost begging Christ. A Roman with no right and no reason to approach a Jewish man comes humbly, not in the authority of his position, but pleading with Jesus and calling him Lord. And look what he pleads for. He says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home and he's suffering terribly. There's, there's a young boy that he cares about immensely, uh, and he's suffering from paralysis, and he calls that condition an agonizing condition. He is suffering terribly, and he comes to Jesus recognizing once again that he's able to do something about it, and Jesus says, I will come and heal him. The centurion comes in humi- humility, and Jesus appears to respond with the not only ability, but once again, the willingness to do something about it. And uh, just like there was a very startling understanding displayed by the leper in verse 2, uh, this centurion, who has just as abrupt of an entrance, now displays an equally fascinating understanding. The leper recognized that Jesus was able to heal, but it had to be his will. What is it that this centurion recognizes? Look at verse 8. The centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed, for I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And in those verses, what he is doing is he's making this astonishing truth claim about the person and the authority of Jesus Christ. First of all, he says, I'm not worthy that you should even come into my home. Uh, Even though I am a centurion, a representative of all the power and the might of Rome, I am not worthy to have you, a Jewish traveling rabbi, come under my roof. I'm not even worthy to extend you hospitality. And beyond that, uh, just say the word and my servant will be healed. He recognizes that Jesus doesn't even have to be in the same location as the person he's healing. Now, up to this point in Matthew, people have been bringing the sick, uh, the wounded, the paralyzed, the the demon-possessed to Jesus. There's not been a hint that Jesus heals from a distance, but something about what this centurion sees and understands and recognizes says that his power is not limited to the physical space that he's in. He has the power to heal even from a distance. And the power lies not just in the presence, but in the very word of Christ. And again, if you go back through the biblical record, this is a remarkable display of the understanding of the power of God. Because in the very beginning, Genesis 1-1, what does it open with? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And how does he do that? He doesn't rearrange pre-existing materials. He speaks and creation comes into existence through the power of his word. And what did we read from Hebrews chapter 1 this morning? This exalted picture of who Christ is, the one through whom God created the world. And now he says that Jesus Christ is the one who upholds or who sustains all creation by the word of his power. And this centurion recognized something about the power inherent in the very word 
of Christ. And there's more. He goes on to talk about what he understands about Christ's authority by putting it in terms with his own centurion authority. He says, I too am a man under authority. To be a centurion in the Roman army meant that you knew what it was both to be under authority and to give authority. He knew that although he was a centurion, he might command a very particular group of a hundred or so soldiers, but there were hundreds of thousands within the Roman legions. This man is not an end unto himself. He responds and he reports to a, a general, a provincial governor, and ultimately his authority comes from the emperor himself. And because he has the authority vested in him by the emperor and those commanders, he can then command soldiers under him. And it is as if Nero himself, or whoever the emperor himself was, is commanding those troops. And so troops understand that to obey an order is to obey Rome itself. To defy an order isn't just to defy a centurion, but it would be to defy Rome himself. And as he looks at Jesus, he says, I recognize the same kind of authority in you. First of all, you have authority over even this paralysis that my servant is suffering from. You can, with the word, command the paralysis to leave, and just like a soldier obeying a superior officer, it will be compelled to go. The centurion could command soldiers, but he could command nothing when it came to disease. His authority simply does not reach that far. He recognizes that the authority of Christ does. And he also recognizes that Christ has this power and this authority from somewhere. And once again, I am not saying that he could very clearly articulate a formula of the Trinity. He probably could not clearly articulate the idea of Emmanuel, God with us, being inherent in who Christ was. But he knew something of the God of Israel, especially if you read Luke's account of this same thing. He had helped to build the synagogue in this town. He knew something of the God of Israel, and he associates this power of Christ to that God. And that becomes very fascinating when you look at the response of Christ. Because look at what Jesus says in verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. And he said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says no one in Israel has exemplified this kind of faith. They are a people with the law, with the prophets, with a history of God's personal divine interaction in their lives, and yet they haven't demonstrated this kind of faith. They've been given promises of the Messiah, who he would be, what he would do, and yet they were blind and deaf to those promises. And it wasn't because it was hidden from them, it was because they rejected the light that they had been given. It's shocking as you go through Matthew and through the other gospel accounts that it is consistently the other and the outsider who recognizes who Christ is. It is the leper, it is the centurion, it is the woman, it is the outcast. It's even the demons who give a clear testimony as to who Christ is. And all the while, the religious elite, the powerful, the socially upward, the massive gathered crowds, although they had seen proof after proof after proof of who Christ is, they consistently, to a man, miss this Jesus. They cannot comprehend and they will not comprehend. And Jesus says, many are going to come. Now, from all points of the compass into the kingdom. And that would have been an affront to the national pride of Israel. Because you do not simply come as a Gentile into the kingdom. If you want to approach Israel's God, you come through Israel. You become as they are to worship their God. And Jesus says there are going to be many from everywhere who come and they recline with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And it would have been shocking and offensive for them to hear this. 
especially when it says that not one of you in Israel has demonstrated this kind of faith. But it shouldn't shock us because what do we see from way back in Genesis as God makes those promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? He says, I'm going to give you a land a particular land as your eternal inheritance. And I'm going to give you a seed, people, descendants, more numerous than the sand on the shore or the stars in the sky. And above all of that, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. And you remember what comes next? And in you, Abraham, and reiterated to Isaac and Jacob, in you, all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And if Jesus is the son of Abraham, and he is, and if he is the one who, uh, who allows entrance into his kingdom, and he is, then what he's saying is this centurion is a microcosm of what you are going to see in the fulfillment of that Abrahamic covenant. As you see sons of the kingdom gathered from the four corners of the earth, and of course, we look forward to Revelation, and we fast forward, and we see this wonderful picture, men and women of every tribe and tongue and nation worshiping around the throne of the Lamb for eternity. This is a, just a glimpse of that. That every kingdom promise made from Genesis to Revelation is absolutely sure and certain to come to pass because that is the nature of the king. He is a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping king. And he says many are going to come, but you don't come just because you have the right DNA. There are going to be those who are rightly understood as sons of the kingdom, genetically tied to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, those who had every, uh, every opportunity, every knowledge, every understanding, every access to the person and the work and the knowledge of who God was and who his Christ would be, and yet they're going to miss it. They're going to find themselves outside in the darkness, wailing and gnashing of teeth because they reject the king as he is presented to them. See, the leper was supposed to go and proclaim what had happened to him as a testimony, as a witness to the priests. And now the centurion sees and understands the power of Christ, and he makes a determination that it is not only a power and authority that he doesn't have, but that it is inherent in the nature of who Christ is. And I don't want to spoil anything, but you fast forward to chapter 12, and we come to chapter 12 after chapter of chapter after chapter of all these healing miracles of Christ and casting out demons and authoritative teaching. And the Pharisees are confronted with the same question, who is this man and where does he get his power from? And they determine that he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. And although they have every proof as to who the king is, they reject their king. And although they might have rightly been called sons of the kingdom by their birth, they'll find themselves outside of the kingdom. And don't you just feel this tied to where we were in Matthew chapter 7? Lord, Lord, did we not come from the right tribe? Lord, Lord, didn't we know and memorize your law? Lord, Lord, didn't we tithe the dill and the mint and the cumin? Didn't we do all of these things? And what's the, what's the answer? Depart from me, I never knew you. But to this one, centurion, Jesus says, go and let it be done for you as you have believed. As you have demonstrated faith, and the servant was healed at that very moment. So we have the healing of the one who uh, demonstrates that the unclean can be made clean. We have the demonstration that an outsider can and will be brought near. And now we're going to see how the unable are made ready to serve. How Christ restores to service. We have the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, and it is so interesting once again to see that in these first three miracles, we deal with a leper, a Gentile, and a woman. Not the social elite, but everyone uh, who society would consider as an outcast, an other, or a second-class citizen. He is not coming to the powerful, the theologically inclined. 
He is demonstrating his power to those who would be considered outsiders. So let's very quickly look at this instance uh, where the sick and helpless are made able and ready. First of all, we see the power of Jesus once again on display in verse 14. When Jesus entered Peter's house, Peter's in Capernaum, where we just interacted with the soldier, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. This time the sick aren't brought to him. This time he goes into the house where she is, and it says she's lying with a fever. And uh, we see a fever as a, a symptom of something else. They didn't connect that. The fever was a serious problem. Fevers mean your body is fighting something. And so she's not just feeling under the weather. As she is here battling this fever, there's serious question about whether she will ever recover or not. This is a serious situation. And Jesus comes in, and in verse 15 it says, He touched her hand. And the fever left her. He doesn't come in and say, uh, he doesn't touch her and say, you're going to begin feeling better in a couple of days. Take this. Let me know how you feel. He says he touched her and the fever left her immediately. Once again, complete and instantaneous healing. Well, how do we know that it was instant? Because look at what she does then. Uh, It says that she goes and she begins, she rises and she began to serve him. If you have ever had even a moderately high fever, you know how that even after you have the fever, you are drained. Sometimes it takes a couple of days, even after the symptoms are gone, for you to get your strength back. You have to rest. You have to rehydrate. Not so when Jesus comes into the situation. As he heals, the healing is complete and immediate, and it's full. And she rises, and she's able to serve Jesus, able to do what the expectations of a woman who had company in her house would have been. And it is very interesting that before Christ, she wasn't even able to do the most basic functions. But as soon as Jesus touches her, she is made able to serve. And again, it's not some mysterious allegory. Jesus really did physically heal her, but she was powerless to respond to Christ until his touch. And then Matthew gives us another summary type statement, just like we had at the end of chapter 4. But this time we come to it with some additional understanding. Because look at verse 16. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word. Once again, that subtle interjection of the power that's inherent in his word itself. And not only that, but he healed all who were sick. We are given this comprehensive nature of what Christ does. There's not a demon that he can't cast out. There's not a sickness that he can't heal. And there's not a type of person that he won't deal with. But why? Why are we given that kind of a summary statement when we've already been given one in chapter 4? Why are we given this list of miracles in general and in specific? Well, it's because verse 17 tells us that it's tied to a very particular promise. Look at verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Here, Matthew is quoting Isaiah 53, 4. That's right in the middle of that servant song of Isaiah, that end of chapter 52 and all the way through chapter 53 where it talks about this promised coming servant of Yahweh. The one who would suffer via the will of God on behalf of the people of God for those who would be restored. And what we need to understand is that Matthew is connecting these healing works of Christ to the promise of the coming Messiah, the coming servant of Yahweh. And some people are very, very quick to point out this chapter when they're trying to claim uh, the ability or the necessity of complete healing now. Uh, They say, if Jesus took our illnesses and bore our diseases, then there is no reason for God's people to be sick in this physical life. Uh, And yes, he really did heal the leper. He didn't just declare him clean. And yes, he really did heal the centurion's servant. And he really did heal Peter's mother-in-law. But real physical healing, uh, although it was an essential part of what he did, it wasn't the pinnacle, it wasn't the focus of what he did. See, if you were to read all the way through Isaiah 52 and 53, and make no mistake, Matthew knew the entire passage that he was quoting from. 
You see that this coming servant of Yahweh, this suffering servant, does more than deal with the physical infirmities of God's people. He does something much greater and much more significant, and that is that he deals with the spiritual weakness and inability of those who would be called God's people. While he does bear their, their physical weakness and failure, ultimately he bears the weight of curse that comes because of sin. He restores people not just to physical health, but to spiritual life. See, not only through the Old Testament and Jewish thought, but we understand that sin bears physical consequences. That the spiritual fall of man is demonstrated and made manifest even in our physical world through sickness and disease and death. And what ends up happening is that Jesus comes and he begins to pull back the effects of that curse. See, it can't be the pinnacle of what he did. This can't be pointing to mere physical healing. Because if it was, then ultimately what Jesus does here is short-lived and ineffective. Because where is that leper today? Anybody know? He's dead. Not a trick question. What about the centurion's servant? Dead. Peter's mother-in-law? Equally dead. Even Lazarus, who Christ calls out of the grave, is now back in the grave. Why? Because we live in a sin-sick world. Because we still inhabit sin-plagued bodies. And because sin leads to death. And these bodies are not made for eternity. But what did Christ come to do? To demonstrate that where the King is, so too is the Kingdom. And as the King comes, we expect that the Kingdom is made manifest in His presence. And so we see the peeling back of the effects of the cursed. As the lame are made to walk, as the blind can see, as the deaf can hear, as the demons are cast out and moved away. But all of this ultimately points to the much greater work that He came to do. And what is that? It's His atonement on the cross where he does not merely deal with the physical effects of the fall, but where he deals once and for all with the heart of the issue, and that is sin that plagues us not only in a physical sense, but that casts us out of God's presence in an eternal and spiritual sense. And so what he does is a foretaste of what is coming in his kingdom when it's consummated. Because when the kingdom comes, when the resurrection happens, these bodies are done away with and destroyed. And the temporary is completely put off and the eternal is put on. And so as he heals these physical diseases, he is not only absolutely demonstrating his power, he is showing a glimpse of what the eternal state of the kingdom is going to look like. We have a clear testimony of the power of the king. He removes the effects of the fall and he did it in his ministry and he accomplishes it in his atonement on the cross and we look forward to the final effects when we're brought into the fullness of the kingdom. And as we conclude, we have to ask a very important question and that is, who is it that is unclean? Because it's easy to point to the leper and say, he was unclean. It's easy to point to the Gentile, the other, the outcast, and say that they're unclean. But if you were to look at Leviticus 13 and 14, you'll see that it comes in a very, very interesting section of the law. The very beginning of Leviticus, I'm not going to preach all the way through Leviticus, but we pre very beginning of Leviticus, God says, these are the sacrifices by which a sinful people can come into the presence of a holy God. In Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu, the two sons of Aaron, the high priest, who had every reason to know that and every experience of the holiness of God, bring something that God didn't ask for, strange fire, and God in his holiness and justice utterly consumes them in a moment. And then the narrative stops. Nadab and Abihu die. And then you go to chapter 11, and it says, these are all the animals you can't eat if you want to stay clean. And this is stuff you can't touch 
if you want to stay clean. And then it goes to chapter 12, and it says, uh, after childbirth, you are unclean. And it goes to chapter 13, if you have a skin disease, you are unclean. And it goes to chapter 14, uh, if you want to come back into cleanness after that skin disease, this is the steps you would better follow to make sure that it's actually dealt with. And then it comes to chapter 14, and it says that only after uh, you can prove you don't have it, that you're clean again. And Leviticus 15 says if you have these bodily discharges, we won't get into details, but these normal, natural bodily functions that happen, by the way, you too are also unclean. And then finally, in Leviticus 15, it picks back up by saying, now after the death of Aaron's sons, the Lord spoke to Moses. And it's weird because nothing has happened in between, but for some reason, there's five chapters of unclean. Because it's easy to say Nadab and Abihu messed up and they are not fit to be in the presence of God. But by the time you get through those five chapters, you know what you come to the, real, the realization of? No one's fit to be in the presence of God. And that's why you come to Leviticus 16 and you have the Day of Atonement and God says, no one gets to come into my presence. You know who does? One guy. One day a year, and he had better do everything right leading up to that, or he gets consumed just like Nadab and Abihu. And the nation can't come, the people can't come. He's got to come on your behalf if you expect me to accept your offering and to make you clean. See, it's no small thing to come into the presence of a holy God. And here's the reality. You and I are as unclean as that leper. We might not have the physical manifestation of leprosy, but we are every bit as tainted and as stained by sin as he was. But Jesus reached out and he touched the unclean and he makes it clean. And Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our great high priest. That he is the better high priest of a better covenant that brings a better sacrifice, not the blood of bulls and goats that cover for a time, but the blood of the perfect lamb that covers and cleanses the conscience of worshipers once and for all. And because Christ has done that for his people, do you know what we're able to do? Hebrews 10.22 says, draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, what we see is that Christ accomplishes the purification for sin that his people required to be in the presence of a holy God. Three things for us to think about as we leave today. First of all, Jesus is the one who makes the unclean clean. I love this, power, this passage. It's a powerful demonstration of the power of Christ. And we're, as a people and just our human nature, we're drawn to the remarkable. We are drawn to the extraordinary, uh, to the unusual, to this miraculous demonstration. And we forget that the most remarkable thing Jesus could do was not healing this man of leprosy. It was not healing that servant. It was not restoring sight. The most miraculous thing that Jesus does is bring dead sinners back to spiritual life. That is by far the greater miracle. And I was the stranger. I was the outcast. I was the one estranged from the covenant promises of God from the time of my birth. And I was the one who was helpless to do anything about responding to Christ without his touch. And so the question is, if he makes the helpless whole and able to serve, if he makes the unclean into the clean one, if he makes the stranger a son or daughter, where are you? Are you on the edges of the crowd? Do you know everything about this Christ without actually knowing and responding to this Christ? Do you know this Jesus? 
Maybe that's something that we need to think about today. If the Holy Spirit is prodding your heart, convicting you and calling you to repent, don't wait until you're good enough, clean enough, able enough. If anything else, this passage has shown us that you're not and you never will be, and neither was I, but that God is able to do what men cannot, and that is restore sinners to relationship with him. Next thing, what about when God isn't willing? See, the leper and the centurion came to Jesus with every understanding that he was fully able to do what they asked him to do. And in those cases, Jesus was willing, and I cannot imagine the joy that was present there, but what do we do when God isn't willing? What do we do when we pray for healing and health remains terrible? What do we do when we pray for restoration and the relationship remains broken? What do we do when we come to God with every confidence that he's able and he repeatedly answers our prayers with a no? Well, it's that time that we test and we see whether our faith is in God or whether our faith is in gaining a particular result. And it's during those times that our faith is tested to see what it's founded on. And it's in times like these, before we're in crisis, that we need to saturate ourselves with very particular truths that remind us that God is able, but there are times when He is not willing. And that even when He is not willing, it is because He is good. Because he has promised to do what is best for us that will make us the most like the Son. Because as he told Paul, my power is made perfect in your weakness. That as Peter tells us, that the testing of our faith should cause us to rejoice because it proves that our faith is genuine and more precious than gold. And those are hard things to remember in the middle of the fire. That's why we need to bury those things deep in who we are right now. That's why we need to surround ourselves with people who will remind us of these truths when we are tested. And finally, we can take God at His Word. See, every time we see these passages and they end or they they summarize by saying this is to fulfill what the prophet wrote, it should bring us joy. If nothing else, the smile that reminds us that this God that we serve is absolutely and perfectly faithful to do all that He said He would do. We have the great benefit of living on this side of the cross where we can look back and see that the God who promised atonement and redemption fully completed that in the work of Jesus Christ. And yet we're a people that live on this side of eternity where we still look forward to those promises that we don't see yet. But we do have that track record of the perfect faithfulness of God that says everything that He has promised to do, He has absolutely done through history, through the failure of people, through the faithlessness of men and women, God has remained perfectly faithful. And so we can live in the confidence and the joy of knowing that not a single promise of His will fail. Maybe you need someone to help you pray through these things. Whether it's knowing this Christ, whether it's living in a time when God appears to be saying no, uh, maybe you need someone to rejoice with because God has proven Himself faithful. After service today, we'll open up the rooms back there for prayer, E101 and 102. If you'd like to have someone to pray with you, we'd invite you to go back there. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to answer questions. We'd love to work through these things with you. For now, let's pray. Lord, you are good and you are powerful. You are the sovereign king over all of creation. And Lord, we stand on this side of eternity and we pray, Lord, come quickly. God, we long to see the demonstration of your power exercised in perfection over all things. God, but in the meantime, we wonder at the miracle of salvation, that you have taken dead, stone-cold hearts and brought them back to life. And God, if there are those today who have not submitted to Christ, God, I pray that you would provoke them, that through your Spirit, you would call them and convict them. You would bring them to the place of repentance and faith and the joy of being found as servants of the King. God, thank you for your word as it is true. Thank you for the Son who is powerful. 
Lord, we praise you and we worship you in Christ's name. Amen.